uh, to Matthew chapter 5 in, the, uh, in your Bibles. That's page 968 in the church Bibles and in the large print Bibles that's page 1505. Page 968 or 1505. We've been looking at the Beatitudes now for a number of weeks. Uh, This is the fifth uh, Beatitude uh, this evening. Uh, And uh, each week uh, I feel, uh, as I'm preparing, uh, that they become more and more of a challenge C.H. Uh, Spurgeon said that the Beatitudes are a ladder of light leading upwards. Uh, and each of them gets more intense as we go. And I think that's a good way of looking at them. And I found each uh, rung of that ladder to be more of a challenge each week. Uh, so just as a reminder of where we are uh, in these Beatitudes, uh, the first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first of all, uh, I am spiritually bankrupt. So before God, I am nothing, and because of sin, I can't do anything to save myself. I am totally and utterly in need of a saviour. I need Jesus to save me. I cannot save myself. Then that leads us on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So when I realise my sin, as I stand before God... And I look at his holiness and how awesome God is. It causes me to mourn over my sin. I hate my sin. I repent of my sin. And I realized in the light of that holiness that I am saved by amazing grace. Then that causes me to be meek. Blessed are the meek. That means that I am able to treat others gently and bear with them as I realize I am no better than anybody else. As I stand before God... All ground is level. I'm no better than anybody else. So I treat others gently because I realize that I am a sinner and they are are sinners too. But as we look at these things, uh, we realize how we fall short and we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We realize we're not what we ought to be and we long to be more like Jesus. So we hunger and thirst for righteousness and as we do that, we long to be more like Jesus By the power of his Holy Spirit living in us, he makes us more like Jesus and we are, we are filled. Now remember these Beatitudes are speaking about Christians. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And these are characteristics of Christians. And the first four of these Beatitudes have looked more at the inward condition. And the final four look more at what that inward change does And how it works out in our lives. And the first uh, of those outward changes that we see tonight is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And my uh, clicker's stopped working, so you have to uh, bear with me. So, blessed are the merciful, for they uh, shall obtain mercy. The second uh, four Beatitudes actually seem to line up somewhat with the first, the first four. And the, the way they seem to do it is this. You have uh, poor in spirit that lines up somewhat with merciful. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that are, are realize they're spiritually bankrupt have mercy towards others. 
Those that mourn, they hate their sin, become pure in heart. Those that are meek and treat others gently are also peacemakers. And those that hunger and thirst after righteousness are persecuted for for righteousness' sake. So they, they kind of line up together. And mercy is the first fruit of that inward change that we've seen from the previous four Beatitudes. How God has worked on my heart showing me mercy causes me to be merciful towards others. This beatitude speaks uh, of mercy speaks to how we are to relate to other people after God's mercy has been shown to us. And the key word in this beatitude is mercy. And we're going to study that word in four different ways. First of all, uh, mercy defined. Then we're going to see mercy exemplified, looking at some spirit, scriptural examples. Then we're going to see mercy applied, what that looks like in us. And then finally, mercy obtained, with the, the meaning of they shall obtain or be shown mercy. So first of all, uh, mercy defined. Uh, a good definition of mercy is pity in action. Pity in action, or pity with the right action. So we can have pity on somebody, but not have mercy because we don't help them. An example of this, perhaps, is when we see tragedies on the television. We might feel pity for them, but most of the time we don't do anything about it. And sometimes this is okay. Uh, We're going to see later on as we apply mercy that we can't solve all of the world's problems. We have to be wise about it. But we can also show action without pity. So, for example, sometimes we can think that in order to get rid of somebody, we should just throw some money at them, when this might not be the best action to take. But mercy uh, is pity with the right action that flows from that pity. It's worth going a little bit further in in our definition and comparing it with grace. Often mercy and grace are linked together in the Bible, but they have different meanings. Grace is a loving response when undeserved. Whereas mercy is a loving response prompted by the helplessness of the one to whom love is being shown. Mercy has no relation whatsoever to merit, whether it's deserved or not but it has all to do with helping those that are in need. Uh, Tim Keller succinctly sums it up when he says this, Grace has to do with man's merits, but mercy has to do with man's misery. Grace has to do with man's merits, but mercy has to do with man's misery. This means that mercy is shown to all kinds of people, not just people that we're comfortable with. Mercy looks at someone's misery and helps them. And we as Christians are called to do this. Listen uh, to these Proverbs calling uh, for pity in action. Proverbs 14.21 It is a sin to despise one's neighbour, but blessed is the one who is merciful to the needy. Proverbs 21.21 Whoever pursues righteousness and mercy finds life, prosperity and honour. And in the New Testament too, we see lots of calls to mercy in addition to this beatitude. Uh, Here's an example in 1 John chapter 3 verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So here John calls for pity 
with action. We'll see this pity play out more when we look at mercy applied. But the best way to understand mercy defined is to see uh, mercy exemplified. And we see this in the Bible. And the most famous place is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it might be helpful to turn to that now. Uh, just to remind you of the page number in the, the Bibles. It's uh, page 1041 in the Church Bible. And in the Large Print Bible, that's page 1615. And it's Luke chapter 10 and verses 27, uh, 25 to 37. And in verse 25, Jesus is asked by a teacher of the law... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm not going to read the whole parable to you. We've, we've read it in the reading. But it's important to see at the beginning that someone is asking Jesus this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus asks about the law. What's the great commandment? The great commandment is quoted about loving God and loving your neighbor. But this answer was known by the teacher of the law and he wanted more reassurance. And so he asked Jesus in verse 29, who is my neighbor? You see, the man wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wanted to get Jesus to tell him he was righteous. But the man knew that he didn't love everybody. And so the word neighbor needed to be defined for him. In response to this attempt by the man to justify himself... Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it begins with this man on the road to Jericho. Now the road to Jericho uh, was a road of about 17 miles and it was a really steep road. It went from about 2,500 feet above sea level right down to about 800 feet above sea level. It was very steep, very rocky and it was very dangerous because there was robbers on the road and the robbers would hide in the rocks and jump out on those walking by and want to steal whatever they had and attack them. And this is exactly what has happened to this man on the road to Jericho. He is left for dead by these robbers on the road. And we know that this uh, account which we read, the, the priest and the Levite who were religious people who knew the law, they knew that in Leviticus, for example, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. They walked on by. Even uh, foreigners in the land were to be treated with love. Leviticus 19 and verse 34 says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So even a foreigner was supposed to be loved and treated even as a, a native born. You see, the priest and the Levite who knew this law were expected to help, but they did not help. It's like a person who's uh, qualified as a doctor or a nurse, uh, being at a scene of an accident and just looking at it, and this person is lying there and they can help, but they will just walk on by. It's the equivalent here. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that, uh, I know for me, when I was uh, first aid qualified, I'm legally obliged to help if I see somebody in need. And so too the priest and the Levite, by the law in Leviticus, were obliged to stop and help someone in need. But they walked on by. Now there may have been excuses that they made. They may have been concerned for their own safety. I mean, who would want to stop on the road to Jericho? It's dangerous. 
They may have been concerned about being ceremonially unclean by touching someone that might be dead. They may have been in a hurry to get to Jericho and didn't want to stop. It perhaps would have been really inconvenient for them. They may have thought that there was a good reason why this man was beaten up. He probably deserved it, you know. They may have thought they couldn't help anyway. He's pretty much dead. What can I do? They probably didn't know CPR back then. But whatever their reason, the parable makes it obvious that they were wrong to walk by on the other side. Well, then comes the Samaritan who shows mercy. Verse 33 says that he had pity. And we see then pity with action. Mercy. This is where the parable gets really shocking, actually. It's easy to condemn the priest and the Levite, but here Jesus tells of outrageous mercy by a Samaritan. Now, the first shock is that this is a Samaritan, right? The Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. They hated each other. The Jews would have nothing good to say about the Samaritans. And yet Jesus is here saying, look at this Samaritan. Look at how he is showing mercy. Effectively, Jesus is saying to the teacher of the law that our enemies are also our neighbours. Well, the next shock is how mercy is shown, which is with amazing generosity and limitless love. First of all, he stops on the road to Jericho. That's important to look at, isn't it? He stops on this dangerous road and he stops and, and is with this man, this enemy who is on the floor. He takes the time to bandage the wounds and pour on oil and wine. Oil and wine were used for their healing properties. And as he was on his own, he probably would have only had enough oil and wine for himself. But yet he helps this man by using his own oil and his own wine to help bandage his wounds. He puts the man on his own donkey, which meant he had to walk, which probably meant his journey was longer on this dangerous road. And he had to bear the burden of walking all this way, 17 miles, by himself as the donkey carried his enemy. He didn't just put him in an inn, but he took care of him there. He used his own time. He used his own expense. And in verse 35, he gave the innkeeper two denarii, which is two whole day's wages, which would keep the man in the inn for a good couple of months. Then he offered to pay any additional expenses that this man has. He bore the burden of this man completely, even the future expenses. It was an amazing generosity by an enemy of the Jews. The Samaritan loved this man as he would want to be cared for himself. The Samaritan never had to ask, who is my neighbor? He knew that mercy was to anyone in need that came his way or he came across. And the big point Jesus makes here is that our neighbor is even our enemy. Really, we should be asking not who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? And the answer is anyone in need, even our enemies. And on one level, the point of this parable is that of imitation. Be like the Samaritan, do likewise. And we see that in verse 37. But there's another aspect to this parable which I think is very often missed. And that's where we have to look all the way back to the beginning at verse 25. What was the question that the man asked? The teacher of the law said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the same question by this man 
uh, that this man asked, rather, is asked in Mark's Gospel. In Mark's Gospel, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And to the rich ruler, Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And we read how the rich man goes away sad because he had great wealth. You see, Jesus was showing the man that the law is impossibly high. The rich man, he couldn't do that. His response should have been to say to Jesus, I can't do this, Jesus. Your, your law is so high, I can't do it. Have mercy on me. And that's the point of the Good Samaritan too. You see, the teacher of the law was asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, here's an example of a, a Samaritan that shows outrageous mercy to this man lying on the road. And then in verse 37, he says, now you go and do likewise. He gets the man, the teacher of the law, to realize uh, who had mercy. He asks him, doesn't he? Which one of these, he says, shows mercy? And Jesus, uh, so the, rich, the, the teacher of the law says, well, the, the, the expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him is the one that was the neighbor. And Jesus said, go, go and do likewise. Well, the point is, the man should have said, but Jesus, I've never loved like this. I've never loved my neighbor like the Samaritan loved the man in the road. I'm not sure I can love my neighbor in this way. This is impossible. Jesus, I need your mercy. You see, the point of the parable was that Jesus is humbling us with the mercy God requires so that we can receive the mercy God offers. And that mercy is offered to us by Jesus Christ, who is the great exemplar of what it is to be merciful. Because he has mercy on us. That impossibly high demand of being this kind of neighbor is not impossible for Jesus. He is always perfectly merciful. And he has shown this to us too in his life, where we see him caring for the poor and the needy, bringing them healing. Those that were outcasts, he, he would touch and he would help and he would heal. And in the Gospels, we read often words like this from Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus did. For them, he touched their eyes and they were healed. When the rich man in Mark's Gospel came to Jesus, we read that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And with the rich man, he showed him that he was poor in spirit. He showed him that your riches... Uh, uh, you're not rich. Even though you have lots of material riches, you are poor in spirit. You need to cry out for mercy. His mercy was to all kinds of people. It was for the poor and needy, and it was for the rich. And it was for all these kinds of people that Jesus died on the cross. He became a man, and he died in the place of men. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. So he's been merciful to us by paying the penalty for our sins. There's no greater act of mercy than Jesus Christ dying for sinners like us. We are so much more worse than the worst of our enemies. 
So much further from God than the Samaritans and the Jews. And yet Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross. The good Samaritan is mercy shown in a parable. But Jesus shows mercy in history on a cross dying for our sins. And he bears the burden of our sin. He pays the full cost so we can be restored. And all this for his enemies. Because, the, because of sin, the gap between us is so, so great, yet God has bridged that gap. He has shown us mercy. Well, in Luke chapter 10 and verses 36 and 37, let me just read you that again. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, the purpose of this parable, I've said, is to show us how we, we, we haven't loved like this, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't love like this. The difference for us is that we are Christians with God's Holy Spirit living in us, and we are therefore able to go and do likewise. He empowers us to do likewise. We looked last week that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This parable should make us hunger and thirst to be more like this. And we're promised we'll be filled. And one of those applications was we get receive the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the work that God calls us to do. So we've seen mercy defined. We've seen mercy exemplified ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's work this for ourselves. Let's bring it home to our own hearts. We've looked back at Christ and looked back at the, the Good Samaritan. But let's look in our own lives and let's see... Uh, mercy applied. Remember that these Beatitudes speak of what Christians are. If someone is a Christian, then they will be merciful. Now, we've seen this before, and we're not going to look at it again, but in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, if you remember in that parable, there is a servant who has been shown, again, outrageous mercy. He has an enormous debt, so enormous that there's no possible way of him ever paying the debt off. And in the parable, he goes to his master and his master wipes his debt clean. But then this servant has a man that owes him a very small amount of money and he demands it be paid back. He has no mercy, even though he's been shown mercy himself. And in the point of the parable, we show our unbelief when we don't forgive others their sins. Because it shows we've not understood how much God has forgiven us. Uh, John, in, his goss- in, uh, in, the, in 1 John, chapter 3, and verses 17 and 18, speaks the same, uh, the same truth. He says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So we apply this first and foremost by saying that in light of the huge mercy God has shown us, we are to be merciful. We are to have pity with action in relation to those in need. Uh, But we need to apply this further by asking two questions. First of all, how do we show mercy? And secondly, who are we to show mercy to? 
So first of all, how do we show mercy? Well, all I am sure have, uh, have seen uh, mercy shown by non-Christians in amazing ways. Non-Christians also do all sorts of amazing works to help those who are poor and needy. We can't say that only Christians do good things to help people. That's a ridiculous statement, isn't it? But what's the difference then? Because Jesus here in this, uh, in this beatitude is speaking to Christians. What's the difference between non-Christian mercy and the being merciful that Jesus talks of that applies to Christians? Well, the difference is that Christian mercy is in two parts. It is both practical and spiritual. Christian mercy is more than just meeting the practical needs of someone. It is that, but it's more. Because a Christian's approach to mercy means that the needs of body and of soul are met. The greatest need anybody has is to be right with God. Sin has separated us from God, and the good news is that Jesus has died for our sins so we can be forgiven. And if we ignore that truth and put it to one side and only care for the needs of the body, that's not actually showing mercy. It's just helping people in a really good way. And it's good to help people. But Christian mercy has helped for the body and the soul. But in order uh, to want to share the gospel, we need to have the right attitude. And perhaps this is where we struggle We should pity people who are dead in sins and this pity should lead us to want them to know Jesus Christ. Sometimes though, it's perhaps the pity that's missing so that when we, we, so that we don't have that desire to share the gospel with them. Now I find this sometimes uh, in uh, working uh, sometimes with the teenagers when we play football for example. It can be easy uh, to perhaps complain and get frustrated when people that we think, well, they're, they're, they're just naughty or they, they just misbehave or all those kinds of things, we can just complain about that rather than, first of all, have pity on the fact that these need Jesus. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They need to be saved by Jesus Christ. That's not to say that we shouldn't have expectations of, of, of right behavior, we shouldn't just say, well, let's allow people to, to throw bricks through our windows and stuff like that. That's not what I'm saying. But what is our attitude, first and foremost, to those who are, are, are just sinning, are, are doing things that are wrong? Is your attitude first to say, oh, you know what, I could, if I, oh, I could just, I could, you know. Or is it to say, these need Jesus. These need Jesus. I was reading uh, recently of the testimony of uh, one of the English reformers, Hugh Latimer, and he was vile to those who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He hated those that believed in uh, the doctrines that we believe, that Jesus, uh, that, we, that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He, he, he hated that and he preached against the reformers, of, uh, just vile preaching. He wanted to see them burned. And there was one man called Thomas Bilney. And his response was this. He said, if that man would preach like that for Jesus, 
He said, what a difference he would make for the gospel. And he went up to this man, to, Tom, uh, to Hugh Latimer, while Hugh Latimer was in, uh, well, he was a priest, and Hugh Latimer was in the confessional booth in the Catholic Church. And Thomas Bilney went to the confessional booth and he said, I've got something to confess. And he told Hugh Latimer about Jesus. And Hugh Latimer gave his life to Christ. And the man who was so vile, his preaching was terrible, horrible to the Christians. That same passion he had against Christ was turned around and he was the greatest preacher in the gospel of his day because somebody had mercy on this man who was just terrible, just a horrible man, but he turned and became a Christian. I think also as we think about pity on a spiritual level, we need to mention forgiveness here. As Christians, we've been shown great mercy And when someone comes to us for forgiveness of sins, so we are to forgive them as God has forgiven us. So the Christian is to meet the spiritual needs and the practical needs. They must be not left out either. We mustn't withhold practical help from someone in need because we're only focusing on word-based ministry. Our word-based ministry, our sharing of the gospel, if it's not backed up with practical care, will not be a very good word-based ministry at all. It has no integrity. But we must help practically, but be careful. We must be wise in how we show mercy. So, for example, giving money to someone may seem like a helpful thing to do, but sometimes it's not helpful. It might be more helpful sometimes to help someone figure out how to put a budget together and plan to pay off their debts. In showing mercy in this way, we need to be uh, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Mercy should limit mercy. That means that it's not merciful for someone to give them a handout when it's not helpful to do so. We need to be thinking about how we help people and not just making assumptions. However, at the same time, As a principle, we are called to be generous with our money to those who are in need. I've been reading through Deuteronomy this last month. And Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 8 uses the phrase open-handed. It says this, rather be open-handed and freely lend to whatever they need. Open-handed, be generous with what we have. There are, but there are needs all around us, aren't there? And we can't meet every single need. So this is why the question of who we are to show mercy to is really important. Does the Bible give us any help whatsoever on who I'm to show mercy to? Well, yes, actually, it does. Uh, The word neighbor, which we looked at in the parable, uh, means near one. And the ones we are to be merciful are the ones to whom, first of all, God has placed near to us. And this begins at home in the family. Uh, Paul uh, writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. And then in verse 8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, we need to care 
for our own families that are in need. So Christians have pity with action for their spouses, for their children, and for their parents and grandparents and even extended family. We care for their needs even at great cost to ourselves. Even if it means perhaps giving up a career for a time or we lose some of our leisure time or it costs us financially. Our families are our nearest neighbours, our nearest near ones. And in a culture where mercy is expected from the state, which can never meet the needs of our families in the same way that we can, I think we can be very distinctive as Christians when we care for our families and show them mercy as we're called to here. So who are we to show mercy to? First of all, our families. If your family is in great need of mercy, it's not really the right thing to just go and try and show mercy in all sorts of other places and neglect our families. The call here in 1 Timothy surely is, isn't it, to first of all show that love for our families. But secondly, we're to show mercy to those who are in the church, our church family. Again, Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This links into the previous point about caring for our family. The church is a family. The church are our near ones. And as a church, we are called to care for one another. And for some in our church... This church is literally the only family they have. And we are to be merciful within the context of our church family. And there are so many ways that you can be merciful within our own family here in Pelsall. There are a number of older members of our church who are widowed and spend a large proportion of the week on their own. There is actually a list on the back of the church of some of those people. And it's an act of mercy, you know, just to visit with them, just to spend time with them, just to to read scripture and pray with them, have a cup of tea with them. That's an act of mercy within our own church. There's looking out for needs in the church and meeting them. Perhaps you see uh, someone whose car isn't working and you can fix it. You see someone with financial troubles and you can give to them. Bringing over a meal to someone who's stressed. Having people over, showing hospitality. All sorts of ways we can show mercy in our own church. Even just praying with each other is an act of mercy. When people come into the church, they should see and sense the fact that we love each other in a way that they don't see in the world. Love that is self-sacrificing and generous. Jesus said if we love each other, then people will know that we are his disciples. Uh, so, if, uh, so we have immediate family, church family, but we're also to be merciful to the world around us. But how do we know who in the world around us we are to help? Well, as I've been thinking through this, there, I think there are two ways to help you work out who to help. First of all, those who God brings along your way. That's like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Those who God God brings along your way are those that are in need that God has made an appointment for you to meet. So if someone is asking you personally for help, or you see somebody in need and you are you are their neighbour and you should help them. A good example of this is your next door neighbours. If you see your next door neighbours needing help, be the first one to help them. Look for ways you can love and serve them. 
God brings people in our way to help them. And if you haven't found that God has done that, then let me encourage you to pray that God would bring someone your way. And the second uh, thing to think about are, are those who God convicts your heart about. Those who God convicts your heart about. This relates to showing mercy to people perhaps you'll never meet. An example of this, of course, is, is charitable giving. We can't give to every charity, uh, but we should give to those that God has convicted us about. However, uh, just as a thought on this, as, as Christian, mercy is giving both spiritual and practical needs, meeting spiritual and practical needs. I think as Christians, we're wise to invest in Christian ministries that meet both those needs, that meet the needs of body and of soul. Well, let's uh, move on, because uh, time is ticking away. But we, so we've seen mercy defined. It's pity plus the right action. We've seen mercy exemplified with the Good Samaritan in Jesus. We've seen mercy applied. And finally, uh, the final point is mercy obtained. What does Jesus mean when he says, the merciful shall be shown mercy? Well, is this, is this Jesus saying, well... What goes around, comes around. If you show mercy to somebody, then, well, they're going to show mercy to you. Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's, well, that isn't the case at all. It does not, doesn't always work that way. When you show someone mercy, you don't always get shown mercy back. So is this saying, then, if we are really nice to other people, we show mercy, we have pity plus action, well, then we earn our salvation, we get mercy from God. Well, no, it doesn't mean that either, because we know from elsewhere in Scripture we can't ever earn our way to heaven. I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan has shown us the standard, and we haven't met that standard. So it's not saying that if we're merciful enough, uh, we will obtain mercy. What is it saying? Well, remember, this is talking about the characteristics of Christians. If we are showing no mercy, it would suggest that you have never received the mercy of salvation in the first place. Christians are merciful because God is working in them. So this is not about receiving the mercy of salvation. This is talking about ongoing mercy. So as we show mercy to others, we continue receiving God's mercy ourselves. How does that work? Well, I think we see in all of the Beatitudes where we see these blessings given to us now and in the future. How, are we to, how do we receive mercy now? Well, first of all, I think we receive mercy through the joy that showing mercy can give us. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 25, we're reminded that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's a mercy from God, that we receive that joy of being able to help other people. We obtain mercy now by, by peace that we receive in knowing that we are believers because we have this heart for others. And finally, we receive mercy now because we can never outgive God. That's not to say that if I give uh, someone a hundred pounds, God's going to give me a hundred and ten. But it is to say that when we give to others, God never shortchanges us. He always gives us so much more than we could ever give anybody else. And I think that when we give to others, we see more how amazingly gracious God has been to us. But yet, also, 
mercy obtained is in the future. It's in heaven, isn't it? We see, uh, first of all, mercy obtained in the future as, as reward. Uh, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks of a man uh, named Onesiphorus who helped him in a time of need. And uh, Onesiphorus shows mercy to Paul, and this is what Paul writes about him. He says, May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. May Onesiphorus receive mercy from the Lord on that day. Now, this could mean salvation, but it's unlikely, isn't it? Onesiphorus was a Christian. Furthermore, elsewhere in Scripture, we, see, we read of being rewarded for how we have served God here on earth. So I think as we show mercy to others in the future, we will obtain mercy in reward for how we've served God. But ultimately, that mercy that we obtain in the end is in just being with God in heaven. That is the greatest mercy of all. Uh, Jude, in verse 21, says this, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. That means that we are waiting right now for God to give us eternal life. And Jude describes that as, as, as as mercy. And it's the greatest mercy of all. We will obtain the greatest mercy of all when we stand face to face with our Saviour Jesus Christ. And when we're standing before God, truly we will be able to say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Amen. Well, let us uh, finish uh, by singing.